Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James. You know, I was I was thinking, did we ever get our radio show jingle? I've been up all night at the keyboard. Oh, boy. What do you think about this? Uh, you know, that's, that's pretty traditional. Okay, okay. What about something a little bit like, it's, it's kind of like this. It's a little bit more like ethereal. a little more terrestrial we'll keep workshopping it uh let's for now let's get back into our reader requests that's right so you've been sending in requests via email facebook and twitter and we are here to answer them it is part two of our all request episode let's dive in okay we had a listener write how do i do an oral case presentation in psychiatry yeah james how do you do that okay so You are likely to present cases in all sorts of different scenarios. So common ones that I've been in are like after I've seen a patient by myself in a clinic or in the hospital and, or sometimes I'm on a team and we've all seen a patient together. And then the attending asked me, can you present this case to us? Um, And sometimes we formally present cases like during a lecture or during teaching time backing up for a second yeah what's the main objective of case presentations because it's like you can do it in inpatient or outpatient or for a lecture like like what's our point here yeah the main objective is just to describe a person to another person and that's just inherently hard to do right like it's hard to encapsulate an entire person with words right Yeah, totally let alone like the encounter and what they were like and what you were like And to do it kind of fairly quickly so you're not writing a whole novel about the situation or or TED Talk. Mm -hmm. So as a trainee, you will do this for lots of people in lots of settings. And the key is to kind of know what the other person wants. Mm, A tricky tricky objective that's so hard right because that changes and sometimes it changes even for the same person and it can be really hard to guess i don't know what you think but i think it's usually okay just to ask hey before i start what kind what information are you looking for Mm -hmm. another way is to say like hey how long do i have for this this case presentation 30 seconds is different from five minutes totally and if they tell you that's great and if they refuse to tell you then you just tell them everything now rarely more than a few minutes yeah as a broad swath generalization that may or may not hold up psychiatry tends to like more information mm-hmm. so so can i just like have a stream of consciousness thing about a patient and that's pretty cool in psychiatry it's like poetic well you are deeply poetic so <laughs> yes. i always support that <laughs> one thing i sometimes see people do is give me the same information in the same order that they gathered it during the interview but I would point you in a different way. It's helpful to do it in an organized method because it helps you keep track as the presenter and it actually helps me keep track as the person who's listening. Right. So stream of consciousness, maybe I can do it as long as it's organized and the person can follow it. 
Well, maybe let's bring a little bit of structure. Okay, okay. It's kind of like doing a dance. Mm. If you do a dance in the certain prescribed way, it allows not just you to know the steps, but your dance partner to know what's coming and so they can prepare. So what are common things that are included in oral case presentations? Okay, so this is the structure, and I would encourage both this structure and more or less this order. Start with HBI, the history of the present illness. What's happening right now? Why are they here? Why are they here? What are their concerns? Also, if they haven't already talked about that, you'll want to talk about some common psychiatric symptoms, things like depression, mania, anxiety, psychosis, which would be delusions or hallucinations. Okay. Then I usually transition into the past psychiatric history. Do you have a sense of what goes in that section? Yeah, so typically you'll want to comment on prior inpatient hospitalizations, current outpatient providers or when they were last engaged in outpatient care, known diagnoses associated with the patient, current providers like psychiatrist or a therapist or case manager, it's helpful information. Medication trials is also really important getting a sense of if they were effective for the patient or if they had any issues with side effects and that's why they're no longer on them, that information can be helpful. And then you'll also want to know more about any history of suicide attempts or self-harm behaviors. So there's five things, inpatient, outpatient, diagnoses, medications, self-harm attempts. Yep. Okay. That's past psych history. I'll often also mention substance use, current or in the past. I'll move into past medical history, past surgical history, current medications, allergies, social history. Are that what goes in a social history for you? So typically this will include some childhood details. Where were they born and raised? Who did they grow up with? Oftentimes I'll ask about education, employment history, living arrangements, and current relationships and support system. Perfect. So those are all things that you might ask about, and you may have varying amounts of time depending how long you've talked to the person and how relevant it is. Yep. I'll then mention family history, and that includes a history of mental illness in biologic family members, review of systems, the mental status exam, labs, studies, relevant findings, and then my assessment and plan. That seems pretty organized and logical. Yeah, I'm providing a lot of background information, and then I'm providing some data, and then I'm wrapping it into what I think is happening. And if you want to know more about crafting psychiatric assessment, let us know, and we'll talk more about it in a future request episode. We received another listener request, this time asking for us to discuss monitoring parameters and management of metabolic syndrome. Okay. So metabolic side effects are pretty common, especially with our antipsychotic medications. And when you say metabolic side effects, what falls into that category? Yeah, so this includes things like weight gain, increased insulin resistance, high blood sugar, high cholesterol, especially LDL. Okay, and you said it happens with antipsychotic medications? Yeah, exactly. So altogether, we call this the metabolic syndrome, and it's traditionally more associated with our atypical antipsychotics, but you can also see it in certain typical medica- typical antipsychotic medications as well, such as chlorpromazine. So really, metabolic screening should be done for all patients on any kind of antipsychotic. 
Do we know why antipsychotic medications cause people to have metabolic side effects? You know, there's a lot of hypotheses out there in the literature, but I'd say the short answer is it's unclear why, but it could be due to resetting of satiety points in patients. And there may also be some direct drug effects on beta cell function and insulin action in the pancreas. Okay, so is it just because it makes people hungrier and they're eating more? Possible, but is also kind of directly impacting metabolism. Okay, so it might be more nuanced than that. Yeah, exactly. Second generation antipsychotics can cause weight gain, diabetes, dyslipidemia, kind of like I've said. Olanzapine and clozapine are the worst offenders with metabolic syndrome. And amongst the atypicals, aripiprazole, zeprazidone, and lorazidone have better metabolic profiles generally. Okay, so if I was starting on someone on olanzapine, I might be especially aware that metabolic issues could come up for them. But you were saying earlier that really I should be aware if they were on any of them. Totally. Now, this is kind of cool because the American Psychiatric Association has teamed up with the American Diabetes Association and they put together some guidelines about how we should even monitor for them. Yeah, exactly. And so we'll kind of run through those together. When you're thinking about starting an antipsychotic on a patient, you're going to do some baseline monitoring for five different things. This includes weight, number one, weight and height, number two, waist circumference, number three, blood pressure, number four, fasting plasma glucose or hemoglobin A1C, and five, fasting lipids. Okay, how often? Once you get those baseline, you'll do some follow-up monitoring, and how often you're doing that depends on which parameter we're talking about. So for weight, you're going to check their weight again at 4, 8, and 12 weeks, and then every three months thereafter. And if a patient gains more than 5% of their initial weight, it's recommended that you consider switching antipsychotics to something that's perhaps more metabolically neutral. Okay, more than 5% of their weight. So if they started and they weighed 200 pounds, then you'd say if they gained more than 10 pounds, we'd think, oh, maybe this is affecting their, their weight too much. Yep, that's weight. For fasting blood glucose or hemoglobin A1C, fasting lipids and blood pressure, those three parameters, you're going to check them again at three months. For fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C and blood pressure, you'll check them annually thereafter. Waist circumference, you'll check annually. And then for patients who have a normal lipid profile at the three-month mark, you'll repeat testing at five-year intervals. Is there a handy-dandy chart? There is a handy-dandy chart. And yes, I was just going to say, this is really confusing and there's a lot of numbers to keep in mind. And it's probably something that you're never just going to have in your head completely. And so we'll include a link to the chart on our website, as well as the original paper where these guidelines came from. And it's much easier to look at visually. Perfect. What if you're monitoring this and then you started to notice that some of them were changing? Yeah. So in terms of management, you know, the role of psychiatrists is a little bit ambiguous in terms of how much they need to manage this because it's our medications that are causing this, right? And I think it depends on a few different factors, first of which is the comfort level of the psychiatrist in managing primary care conditions. I think different psychiatrists come with different backgrounds and um, especially those maybe coming from medicine might feel more comfortable starting statins and blood pressure medications, et cetera. It also depends on the patient's capacity and willingness to engage with a primary care doctor. In certain situations, the psychiatrist might be the only doctor that they're seeing on a regular basis. 
basis. And the psychiatrist might be more willing to prescribe medications in that situation. And then access to primary care is another factor at play. Yeah, this seems like something where it would really behoove us to work closely with our medicine coworkers. Yeah, if possible, if the patient has a PCP, it's really recommended that the psychiatrist works really closely to collaborate with them. What if this can't be done? Like for whatever reason, say you can't control these other things or the medicines, other medicines aren't working or you don't want to start a medicine to treat the side effects of a medicine. Some general ideas or or things to be thinking about is number one, you know, does the patient really need to be on an antipsychotic? In our last episode, we talked about an off-label indication of using antipsychotics for sleep. You know, does this really need to happen if the patient doesn't have an underlying psychotic disorder? Probably not. Second, if this medication really is indicated, can the patient be switched to a more metabolically neutral antipsychotic without causing a decompensation in their psychiatric illness? Like, is that something to think about? And third, if the medication really can't be switched and it's really indicated, can the patient tolerate a lower dose of the antipsychotic? A lot of metabolic side effects are believed to be dose dependent. Hmm. So besides those medication considerations with the antipsychotics themselves, there there are also some general principles that you can um, encourage with your patients. First of which is to try living a a healthy lifestyle um, as as much as they possibly can. So encouraging regular aerobic exercise, trying to eat a healthy diet with lots of vegetables, fruits, healthy grains, et cetera, and to quit smoking. So those are some things that you can talk with your patients and counsel them about. There's also medications for metabolic issues. I've mentioned there's statins for high LDL, there's antihypertensives for elevated blood pressure, and then metformin is a drug that's increasingly being used to address metabolic syndrome um, in patients on antipsychotic, and it can help to decrease hemoglobin A1C, it can help to improve insulin sensitivity, and it can lead to weight loss. And so with those medications, you can collaborate with the PCP for management typically. Okay. Topic number three, we had a question about deprescribing, and this is actually a great segue from the last question. Yeah, so so what is deprescribing? It is the opposite of prescribing. Oh, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's reducing the amount of medicine that you're giving someone and then eventually stopping it. And I think logically this makes sense, right? Like yeah. you start something, you stop something. In real life, that's way less common Doctors have pads for prescriptions, but we don't really have pads for stopping prescriptions. Yeah, and I can see how it's much easier to just start a medication and then a lot harder to stop it, probably for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, and I think that gets at some of it. We just have this idea that the best treatment is to start a medicine, like fixing a problem. But sometimes it's actually just as good or or better to stop something as it is to start. Yeah, so what would be an example of, of this? Let's think about an example. If you start an antibiotic for an infection, you would logically take that medicine as long as you had the infection, like more or less, and then you would stop it. Right. You just wouldn't be on an antibiotic forever because there's lots of harms associated with that. Exactly. And we wouldn't necessarily think of that as deprescribing, but it is. It's a medicine that you start prescribing, then you stop prescribing it. Now, if you never stopped any medicine, you'd end up on so many different ones. Like, okay, imagine as an extreme. You start as a kid. Well, I had that amoxicillin for that ear infection I had. And then once I hurt my knee and so I was taking Tylenol. It would be bad. It would all bad up. It would all build up and be bad. (laughs) Yes. Or bad up. It would bad up. Now, that kind of sounds extreme, but it's actually not that uncommon. 
folks with multiple health issues and particularly older people yeah. end up on a whole slew of medicines. I mean, since medicines have side effects, like you're saying, this causes real problems. And ironically, sometimes people get prescribed more medicines to help solve the previous side effects from the earlier. Yeah, I can think of a lot of older patients who I've worked with who just end up on these insane medication lists that sometimes these various drug-drug interactions and polypharmacy, and it can lead to a lot of problems for our elderly patients whose physiology is just a little bit more sensitive. Totally. Why does this even happen then, right? Like, why logically, if we know that this should be happening, like, why is it? Yeah. There's a lot of reasons. I mean, I think sometimes patients have concerns about stopping medicine, like, hey, I think this medicine's helping. Why would I stop it? Or some doctor told me I should take it and I don't want to be disrespectful or I don't want to lose that doctor because I really like them. Sometimes doctors have concerns too, like the patient's going to be mad if I say they should stop taking this. Or sometimes it's just not knowing, like, I don't know how long I should be using this or, or how to stop. And sometimes there's things that are kind of in between us, like some of the side effects or the withdrawal that people can mm -hmm. have if they've been taking something for a while. In psychiatry, some of those are especially highlighted. A lot of our medicines are taken for long periods of time. People can be on an antidepressant for six months, 12 months, 18 months, or, or 18 years. And that can especially feel like, oh, I've just been taking this my whole life. Mm-hmm. Also, our illnesses are sometimes less clear than an infection, yeah. which we could measure and see that it improved. And without objective measures necessarily or in the same way, it's sometimes harder to say, oh, this is the time to stop. Also, psychiatry is a specialty, and as a specialty, it fits within one piece of a larger puzzle. And we may not have say or control over all the various other parts of this person's medical care. So how do we go about deprescribing? Like, where do you start? I'll reference an article written by Dr. Scott in JAMA, and we'll have a link to that on our website. There's algorithms of sorts to this, and it's going to feel pretty logical, but it goes in order. So first, and this is simple but so useful, is to get a full list of what someone's taking. And that seems simple because you'll see on their computer chart, oh, these are all the medicines. But sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not, and sometimes they've changed. So let's take five minutes and just see what you are taking and why. Mm -hmm. And then you look at your different options. Are there medicines that this person doesn't need anymore? Sometimes it's really simple. Oh, you started this and it just wasn't stopped, but now is the time to stop. Or maybe now it's causing adverse effects is, you know, in, in a person. And maybe for this reason, it, it should be prioritized as one to get rid of. Exactly. And I think that's a great point because sometimes there's different options. We aren't going to want to stop everything all at once because mm -hmm. that might be really unpleasant or have its own problems. But you could prioritize. This is the thing that we really should stop first and then we'll move to this and then we'll plan for that. Especially in the older population, there's this helpful beers list of medications that you can look through and those medications are believed to be higher risk or have more uh, adverse effects for older patients. So that could be a way to help you prioritize, especially in working with geriatric patients. Definitely. The key here is to communicate, is to talk with people and sort of explain what your thinking is and what you're concerned about. Hey, I'm really worried that if we keep taking this medicine, it's causing you to have problems going to the bathroom and mm -hmm. maybe we should reconsider this. Just being super transparent about the thought process and really collaborative. Totally. So on the one hand, you say what you're thinking. And then I think the other side of that is to ask what they're thinking too, right? Yeah. What do you think about that? Do you have any concerns? Do you have any hopes? Like, would it be better if this weren't happening? And then to work within what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. 
when you do get to the point of stopping, there's often a question of how. How are you going to do this? People want an algorithm, right? Take this much for this many days, and then this much for that many days, and then that many days, and then stop sort of thing. Yeah. Sometimes that exists, but sometimes... I feel like more often than not, it doesn't. Totally. We're much better at knowing how to start medicines than stop them. Yep. Each medicine's going to be slightly different. So I'm sure you want us to tell you how many days or hours for each medicine and just be so hard for us to do that. But you do have resources that are available. Within the realm of psychiatry, there's a book called STAHL, S-T-A-H-L, Pharmacology, which has some guidelines. Deprescribing.org is a Canadian organization that also describes deprescribing. They have a few algorithms as well for psychiatric medications like benzodiazepines and antipsychotic medications. Your clinical pharmacists are also available. Incredibly useful resources. Absolutely. And they can talk to experience or literature that may be out there that might be able to help. So what are some common factors that we can think about, though, when we're coming up with how to taper and discontinue a medication for a patient? Common things you might think about would be the half-life or how long the medication stays in your system. So Mm -hmm. two antidepressants like fluoxetine or Prozac and sertraline or Zoloft, now, fluoxetine stays around for a long time, so when you deprescribe it, the drug will gradually leave because it just breaks down more slowly. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like sertraline, if you stop taking it, it would... Foom. That could cause problems. Yeah, it would be more noticeable. Yeah. Now, another factor is how long you've been taking the medicine. For instance, for a medicine like lorazepam or Ativan, if you've just taken that medicine once, you don't really need to deprescribe it. But I imagine if someone's been on it for years, then their body probably has a certain degree of tolerance and you'll have to be more thoughtful about how slowly you do that taper and and discontinuation. And that speaks perfectly to neuroadaptation and how Mm -hmm. our brains have Mm -hmm. gotten used to certain medicines and how some medicines actually aren't safe to just stop. Mm -hmm. And so there's also different medicines have different mechanisms of how they work. Sometimes people take them for different reasons. And sometimes you're stopping a medicine for a different reason. If you need to stop this medicine right away because somebody's having a life-threatening side effect, you might need to stop it really fast, even if that's unpleasant. Or if they've gradually finished with treatment, you might be able to more gradually do it. Those four factors, the half-life, how long they've taken it, how the medicine works, and then why are the most common things I think of in terms of how fast I can stop it. Mm -hmm. In general... Many psychiatric medications are tapered quite slowly. Rarely do we just stop something. That brings us to the end of our second listener request episode. Thank you so much for sending in questions and thoughts. It was really helpful, and we hope you'll continue to. Yeah, please send in more Facebook, Twitter, or our email. In the meanwhile, you can check out our website, leave us a review, and let us know what you'd like to hear about. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can also check us out on iTunes, where you can rate, comment, and share Psych Essentials. Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's always a link on our website. And our sound effects were gratefully sourced from the creative artists in the Creative Commons. We'll have links to all of them in our show notes. People, places, details are changed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye. Bye.